face to, to Christian belief is the issue of suffering. Um, so uh, anyway, we're going to have some answers today. So thank you, Peter. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I've read your notes and it looks really good stuff. Great. So, okay. Thank you very much. Th- there should be plenty of copies of notes around that everyone can, can have some. Um, you don't need to follow through the notes as we're going through. It's just that I find uh, if I don't produce the notes, then people tend to want the quotes that I use on the PowerPoint. Uh, and I can't reproduce the PowerPoint because of copyright issues to do with the pictures and things, and it comes all very complicated. So I just jot down what I think are the essential quotes and points and to sort of outline uh, on a bit of paper for everyone. Uh, I've also, if this is a topic of particular uh, interest to you, I've got a short uh, chapter here. Uh, from a philosophy course that I wrote a little while back that deals uh, with uh, the problem of evil uh, in a little bit more uh, depth uh, than I'll be able to go into here today. Um, It says some of the same things, but also some additional things uh, as well, particularly about the issue of coping with evil and the difference between the resources that a Christian worldview gives us to actually cope with the reality of suffering and evil versus the resources that an atheistic and naturalistic worldview might provide. Um, And I'm not going to go any more into that other than that I started with this song that some of you heard playing as you were coming in um, from Transatlantic's album The Whirlwind. Now, they're a secular group, but the the group leader is a Christian musician called Neil Morse. Uh, He's the lead singer and the keyboardist in this group. And he wrote this song about the then recent death of his uh, father, and they put it on their uh, recent album. And I think it's a really good sort of summary of a Christian uh, attitude towards going through suffering uh, in life. And he talks uh, about his father has obviously uh, been a Christian as well. Long ago, he saw the light, uh, and then he, he dies, and they're talking about scattering his father's ashes. And we have uh, this refrain, and I know that we're more than dust and ashes, and one day we'll know what we've known. One day we'll get to understand everything but on the dark side there are times of suffering and I don't believe I wear rose coloured glasses but as the pages turn one day we'll learn of everything but now we see through glass and it's picking up on St Paul's line about now we see as in a glass as in a mirror darkly because mirrors in the ancient world were not very good don't think the kind of mirror that you have on the bathroom wall uh, think much more uh, of a, a distorting image of yourself that you would get looking in a mirror and and St Paul says we kind of see things we do see reality but we see it in a distorted way from our finite position this side of eternity and when we get to eternity we'll be in a much better position to understand the, the suffering that we've gone through and why things are the way that they are but in the meantime that there is sufficient reason to trust in God in the midst of suffering, and that actually gives hope. And he goes on to talk about the hope of heaven. Um, uh, You can live like a rolling stone, but you can't escape with your life. Uh, We seek a city on fire with the heart of a child's desire, and we'll cross that bridge and enter into life, into real life. Um, So he talks about that. One day we'll burn like lightning in that city, Uh, in the sky and the the hope of heaven. So I wanted to start off by introducing some specifically kind of Christian theological resources on on the problem of suffering because what I'm now going to go on and do in this first session uh, is look at what I call two different problems of evil, two arguments from the reality of evil against 
the existence of God or against the rationality of believing in God. And what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to kind of disarm those objections by showing that the arguments don't work rather than giving a sort of counter explanation as to why there is evil. So I'm not really going to deal with um, what many Christians would call theodicy, that is attempting to explain why it is that God allows evil to exist. Because if you think you've got a good explanation, obviously that would weigh in the balance against the arguments from evil against it. But I'm going to take a slightly different approach, which is simply saying that the arguments people try to construct from evil against God don't work. So let's break it down into two uh, main types of argument, a more old-fashioned type, at least old-fashioned within the academic community, but it's one you'll still see in popular works like The New Atheists. Uh, and then a more recent sort of version of the argument. So let's start with the logical problem of evil. I I talked last week about square circles, and as soon as I give you the concept of a square circle, you immediately know that you will never come across one. The, The concepts just don't make sense fitting together. And many people have argued that the concept that there really is evil in the world and that there's a God really don't fit together. You can have one or the other, but not both. Just as something can be a circle or a square, but not both. And since evil's real, obviously, well then there can't be a God. Now are these claims that evil exists and God exists really logically incompatible? Are they really on a par with saying there really is a square circle somewhere? People have worked out that we actually need to be a bit more specific about kind of unpacking this argument to try and, and make it work logically. And this is atheist Robin Lepravda, uh, if I've pronounced him correctly. And he puts the logical problem of evil about as well as I think you can put it. And he puts it like this two premises leading to a conclusion. The first one is if God is uh, all knowing, he'd be aware of suffering and evil. So you can't have the get-out clause of saying, well, if, you know, God would get rid of evil and suffering, of course, but he doesn't know about it. So, but hang on, isn't he meant to be all-knowing? So if God's all-knowing, he'll be aware of suffering and evil. If he is all-powerful, he'll be able to prevent suffering and evil, surely. And if he's perfectly good, he would surely desire to prevent evil and suffering. Secondly, but clearly, he doesn't prevent evil and suffering, there is evil and suffering conclusion therefore either there is no such deity, no deity that's all good and all powerful and all knowing or if there is some kind of deity he is not all knowing all powerful and perfectly good though he may be one or two of these things Sam Harris, the new atheist puts it like this, if God exists Either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities, nice turn of phrase, or he doesn't care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. Now, one of the interesting things I think you should immediately notice when you start trying to formally construct these kind of problem of evil arguments is that they turn out not to be arguments for atheism. 
Now, the conclusion of both of those arguments was not that atheism is true, that there's no kind of supernatural creator. It was, they turn out to be arguments against a, a belief in a certain type of supernatural creator. One that's all good and all powerful and all knowing. And who created the world, you might want to add and, and throw on. So they're not arguments for atheism. They're not arguments against belief in God, theism, as such. And they're certainly not arguments that naturalism or the materialistic worldview is true. They're only arguments against a particular type of theological belief. Which is an interesting thing to note about what is surely the major argument used by atheists to justify their position. That the major argument the atheists have for their position is not an argument for atheism. But then people, having tried to kind of tease out this supposed contradiction between God and evil, started asking some hard questions about the premises of the arguments that they were constructing. For example, will an all-good God necessarily desire to prevent all evil now? Uh, Atheist Richard M. Gale says, well, we often we as human beings feel justified in bringing about or not preventing some evil or other so that a greater good can be avoided. Uh, A greater evil can be avoided or a greater good realized. So that that assumption in the argument is not actually true, even in our own experience. Uh, Lepravda, whose argument I quoted, himself says, suffering might be part of the divine design insofar as suffering is an essential consequence of some greater good. So it's just not true to say that an all-good God would necessarily desire to get rid of all evil and suffering. It depends, as philosophers say, maybe the existence of some evil and suffering is necessary to prevent even greater evil and suffering or to uh, allow some even greater uh, outweighing compensating good to exist. J.L. Mackey was a famous Oxford atheist. His uh, book, The Miracle of Theism, was a set text when I was at Cardiff. Uh, He says, The opposition between good and evil might be constructed in such a way that a wholly good God would not, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could. And he goes on, It might be argued that there are limits to what even an omnipotent and almighty and all-powerful being can do. Remember the argument depended on saying, well surely if God was almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, able to do anything, he'd be able to get rid of evil and suffering. But Mackey, an atheist philosopher, says that's not necessarily true. For example, it would usually be said that God cannot do what's logically impossible... And this, we can agree, wouldn't be a real departure from the idea of omnipotence. So if I point out that, of course, since square circles are impossible, God can't create a square circle, have I thereby somehow pointed out some sort of limitation upon God being omnipotent? Say, well, God's not omnipotent after all because he can't create square circles. And most philosophers, atheists and theists alike, have said, no, well, of course not. When you were saying he's omnipotent, we're saying he's got the ability to do anything that's possible. You can't attribute 
to God or to anyone the ability to do things that can't be done like making square circles so it's not necessarily true that an omnipotent God would be able to get rid of all evil and suffering maybe points out Mackey the problem of evil does not after all he says show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another this is an agnostic philosopher I quote from lots of agnostics and atheists in this talk I think he has much more power uh, than quoting from believing philosophers and apologists Um, these guys are not biased in our favour Paul Draper says it's possible that there's some good reason perhaps a reason too complicated for humans to understand for God to permit tragedies so tragedies don't conclusively disprove God's existence Um, William Rowe says pretty much the same thing Um, no one he thinks has succeeded in establishing this logical contradiction claim and then he goes on to talk about in very philosophical language but he's basically talking about free will he's saying if you believe in free will there's a fairly compelling argument that evil is logically consistent with God Um, and here's why I introduced this distinction that I started off with between a theodicy and actually trying to give an explanation as to how come God allows evil and suffering an explanation that I think is plausibly true and actually just giving a defense showing that the arguments against God from evil and suffering don't work now if you had a good theodicy that would count as a good defense but a good defense doesn't have to be a theodicy it doesn't have to be something that you actually think is the true explanation given that the claim is that there's a logical incompatibility between God and evil all you need to do is show some possible way in which God and evil could both exist in the the same world even if it's not the actual way as long as it's possible that proves that God and evil are not incompatible logically speaking and a lot of this goes back to this chap with a fantastic beard he's an American philosopher of Dutch extraction called Alvin Plantinga and he's the top philosopher of religion in the world at the moment and he's a Christian and he's particularly famous in this area for talking about what's called the free will defense which basically goes along these lines a world containing creatures who are significantly free things like us is more valuable than a world containing no significantly free creatures but to create creatures capable of significant moral good God must create creatures capable of moral evil if I had no choice about always doing the right thing I wouldn't be praiseworthy for doing the right thing it wouldn't be my responsibility if I had no choice about it but if I have a choice about doing the right thing then I can of course choose to do the wrong thing and so in order to permit the great goods allowed by free will God has to permit the existence of the evils permitted by free will now the claim would be of course that the goods permitted by free will in the end overall all things considered outweigh the bad things 
God can't give these creatures this freedom, freedom to perform evil or good, and at the same time prevent them from doing so. But even an omnipotent being can't create creatures with the freedom to create really good, praiseworthy, moral lives, love, and so on, and yet prevent evil. Now, I have this fantastic painting from uh, Bruegel. Because many people would then say, okay, you're talking about moral evil, the evil that man does unto man. What about all that suffering caused by earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis and so on? You know, people aren't responsible for that. How does this cover what philosophers call natural evil, which is basically the suffering caused by the laws of nature doing their thing. Well, here's where it's particularly important to remember that Plantinga is not giving a theodicy. He's not saying, well, here's what I think the actual explanation of why God allows that is. All he's doing is giving a defense. He's saying, here is a logically possible way of seeing that these two things are compatible. And he says this, okay, well, supposing that all examples of natural evil actually are caused by free will. Not our free will, the free will of fallen angels. Demons do it all, misusing their free will. Now, of course, Plantinga doesn't think that that's true. might think it's partially true, some warrant for that in the Christian tradition but he doesn't think that explains the whole thing but it's surely it's, it's kind of possible there could be such beings who could misuse their free will in that way but if that's even possible that proves that God and evil are not logically incompatible hence Michael Bergman says there's nearly unanimous agreement amongst both theistic and non-theistic philosophers of religion, that the logical version of the argument from evil doesn't work. The consensus opinion on all sides of the fence on this issue is that this so-called logical problem of evil is a busted flush. It just doesn't work as an argument. And hence the discussion, at least in the academic community, has moved on a bit to what's called the evidential argument from evil, the evidential problem, which basically says, okay, okay, so God and evil aren't logically incompatible. It's possible that evil exists and that the kind of God you Christians believe in exists. But it sure does look unlikely. Let's move on to talking about probabilities instead of certainties. Retreated back to the next defensive position, as it were. We have to weigh the problem of evil, therefore, against belief in God, and as we'll see, take other things into account as well. And if you kind again, you try and construct that kind of intuitive kind of well, surely it makes it in, un, unlikely that there's that kind of a God. And you try and put it into a proper logical structure, you end up with something like this. See how this grasps you as an argument against believing in God. Premise one. I don't see, or we as human beings, don't see 
a good reason why God would allow or do particular examples of evil or the amount of evil that there is, something like that. Secondly, if, if, I, if we can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing this evil, then there probably isn't a good reason. Three, therefore, there probably is no good reason why God does or allows evil. But unless there was a good reason for God to allow it, he'd be unjustified in allowing it. Therefore, God, at least of the kind that we're imagining as Christians exists, probably doesn't exist. Okay? That's the general kind of structure of this sort of field of argumentation. And it reminds me a little bit of the story of the policeman coming across the drunkard scrabbling about on the floor around the lamppost at night. And the policeman asks him, you know, what's, what's he's doing? And the drunkard says, looking for my keys, officer. Lost my keys. And after, you know, helping him scrabble around, looking around for it, like the policeman's getting a bit frustrated and says, well, are, you sh- are you sure that this was where you lost them? And the drunkard says, no. The policeman says, well, why are you looking here then? And the drunkard says, well, this is the only place I can see. <laughs> it's a nice illustration of the, the limits of our ability to know everything that we might know. As Gregory Gansel says, the, the inference this probabilistic argument makes from the claim that it, it seems to us as though there's no sufficient reason to be found for the evil in the world to the conclusion that it's probably the case that there is no sufficient reason that God has isn't a particularly strong inference. Plantinga points out, this is a William Blake's, one of William Blake's illustrations from the book of Job. When God replies to Job at the end of the book of Job in the Bible, he doesn't tell him what his reason is for permitting these sufferings. Perhaps Job couldn't so much as grasp or comprehend it. Instead, God attacks the implicit inference from Job's not being able to see what God's reason is to the notion that probably God has none. And he does this by pointing out how vast is the gulf between Job's knowledge of reality and God's knowledge as its creator. And you get this huge list at the end of Job of questions that God asks Job about his knowledge just about the material universe. Now I know our knowledge as human beings has come on a bit since Job's day, as it were, but it still seems to me that the differential between our knowledge of reality and the things to be known about reality must be pretty big. It's a bit like this, this illustration, the, the grand master playing a novice at chess. You know, maybe some of us know a bit about chess, played a few games, used to be in a school chess club like me. But we're watching a grand master playing a game of chess against a newcomer. And the grand master moves um, you know, a bishop... And the novice takes the bishop, and we think, oh, the grandmaster must have just made a mistake. He's lost a bishop. We know that's an important piece. Can't see, I can't see any good reason why the grandmaster's made that move and, and lost his bishop. This so called grandmaster must not be all, all that. I bet he's going to lose. 
Now, would we be in a secure position, in a position where that, that inference on our part was really justified, given that we don't know all that much about chess... Maybe this grandmaster knows more. Maybe his thinking 12 moves ahead rather than the three moves that we can look. And he's just suckered the other player into a trap by sacrificing his bishop in order to achieve the greater good of winning the game. That could be true. It seems actually quite plausible if, you know, if we don't know much and he knows a lot and, and so on. So these inferences from I can't see a good reason why so-and-so's done such-and-such, well, it all depends upon who am I and who's so-and-so and how much is there to be known about such-and-such. This is uh, Michael Ward and his fantastic little book, The Narnia Code, which I highly recommend to those of you who like C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia books. And... It's called the Narnia Code because this guy reckons, and he's convinced a lot of people, that he's unearthed a kind of literary secret, a unifying theme that runs through all the Chronicles of Narnia that Lewis put there secretly and that no one has noticed until now. And you hear that kind of claim and you immediately call this thing, oh, yeah, yeah, conspiracy theory, it's all of the, the kind of Dan Browns of the world, etc. Um, but I'd say, read the book. He's done a lot of research on this. He's, he's uh, studied it very well and he has convinced a lot of C.S. Lewis scholars that he's right about this. Uh, and it all comes, particularly, he was thinking, and, and there's been a lot of sort of literary criticism about Lewis's books over the years, pointing out things like, how come in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe Father Christmas suddenly turns up out of the blue. Hang on a minute, you know, this is, there is no Christ in Narnia, there's Aslan. You know, shouldn't it be Aslanmus? Who's this Father You know, that comes from a completely different sort of story world than the Narnia world somehow, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem to sort of be sort of sticking out a bit like a sore thumb? How can characters in Narnia know of Christmas when they show no knowledge of a character called Christ? It makes no sense. It looks like a, a mistake. And lots of literary critics have picked up on this and other things in the Lewis uh, Chronicles of Narnia that they've said it's just a hodgepodge. It's a poorly constructed hodgepodge of lots of different ideas from all over the place that has no real sort of thematic unity or underlying coherence to it. It's no sense. Well, Michael Ward had a bit of a breakthrough reading some of Lewis's poetry about the medieval view of the planets. And of course, Lewis was a medieval scholar, very knowledgeable on medieval worldview, medieval literature, and so on. And in medieval um, scientific thinking, there wasn't really yet the separation between astronomy and astrology that we have now. And um, they had the, the, uh, the different planets that they knew about at the time, uh, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon. And they all had different symbolic associations for the medieval mind. And uh, Ward argues the Narnia series I now started to see was a, a literary equivalent of Holst's The Planets Suite, and the music by Holst, The Planet Suite. Each one of the seven heavens from medieval uh, thinking gave the key to the underlying unity of the series of stories and to a, a different particular book in the series. 
Um, if Lewis was indeed writing his first Narnia Chronicle, the line the Witch in the Wardrobe, first one to come out, in order to express Jove's spirit, Jupiter, um, the jovial personality, we can see why he was so keen to keep Father Christmas in the story, even though on the face of it he doesn't belong there. Um, this is the famous um, red spot. Um, which to the medieval mind reminded them of the, the pierced side of Christ uh, and so on sometimes a storyteller will do what seems illogical on the surface because he knows of a deeper logic going on underneath if you haven't grasped, and this is a quote from Lewis the real and inward significance of the work as a whole then this illogical thing will just look like a mere botch or failure of unity, as Lewis himself wrote uh, in Literary Criticism. Once you see that Jupiter's imagery is the inward significance of this Chronicle of Narnia story, then you see that Father Christmas is not a botch. Well, I refer you to um, Planet Narnia uh, to read more about that and the different uh, significance of the medieval imagery to the different stories in the series, but it's, it's a very convincing case, I think. Um, but even if we just say, well, let's just take that as being true, it's not implausible that that could be true, here would be an instance where an author of a sort of world has a deeper logic going on unconnecting everything and making sense of everything than anyone had noticed until Michael Ward came along and worked it out. Uh, and the fact that he'd been criticised and everyone said, oh, it's just a hodgepodge, it doesn't make sense, why is he allowing this? I don't see any good reason why Father Christmas is in the story. There must not be any good reason. Might be a bit of a, a warning to those who might want to argue, just because I can't see a good reason that there's suffering in the world, God surely doesn't have a good reason, and therefore he probably doesn't exist. Now, we could also very briefly point out that um, even if you thought there was something to the problem of evil, you have to weigh it against reasons for believing in God. You might have to do a sort of overall balancing out of the evidence. You can't just look at one piece of evidence. Um, there's an agnostic atheist, Michael Tooley, Graham Oppie, basically saying that. So if we put evil in one kind of balance pan, as it were, you'd have to put a whole bunch of other reasons for believing in God in the other balance pan before you could reasonably say that you'd kind of worked through the issue and seen where the evidence overall pointed. Moreover, and we'll come on to this when we look at the, the, the moral argument in a little bit more depth later, when atheists say evil exists in advancing the problem of evil, do they mean subjective evil? You know, stuff that I just don't like... But you do different strokes for different folks. It's all relative. Or do they mean real objective evil? To mount the argument from evil, it seems to me you'd have to mean real objective evil. But if you mean real objective evil, then of course it seems you have to believe in real objective good, by which you're judging something is falling short of the good, and you have to explain where that good has its... Um, Location in reality, as it were. And the moral argument says that that's very difficult to do with a materialistic view of the world. So you actually get into the, the moral argument for God. There's, as it were, an argument for the existence of God from the existence of real, objective evil. Um, 
this is Mackie again, if there were objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. So we have a defensible argument from morality, and that might just, be, just as well be from evil as from good to the existence of God. Um, so, planting is summing up there saying, the logical argument just doesn't work. They've retreated to this evidential argument. It seems a bit shaky, at least. And even if you think there's some power to it, you've still got to factor in the fact that doesn't it kind of rebound? And aren't there other arguments to take into account for believing in God that you have to weigh against it anyway? So that's enough of that. And we'll have a few uh, question times and a little break before we look on a bit more depth of that kind of rebound, the moral argument. Uh, issue. And this is, again, I, I keep including this slide because it kind of reminds us again of the, the fact that the Christian worldview is, you might think, particularly well equipped to actually deal with evil and suffering because it's the only view that says not only is there a God, but this God actually suffered for us whatever the game is as it were he took his own medicine as someone once said does anyone want me to clarify any particular things or want to press me with objections or uh... could people say there was a natural evil um, you know that's not to do uh, well assume it's not to do with free will <laughs> yeah. um, and so couldn't God intervene because he's in control of the laws of yes um Even if we chalk up some natural evil to the demonic, and I think we've got warrant for doing that as specifically as Christian theists, and even if you point out that actually quite a lot of what you might think of as natural evil might well actually be traceable back to human misuse of free will. Um, when you think about deforesting, causing landslides, over-exploitation of the environment, etc., there's still, I think, going to be a kind of surge of natural evil that it's not particularly plausible to attribute to the free will issue. I think you're right about that. Could God intervene? Well, we believe in a God who can work miracles. They're not logically impossible. So he could. So why doesn't he? Well, here, the the objection assumption, as it were, is that unless the believer in God can come back with, well, here's what I think the reasonable plausibly is, then we've got a good argument for not believing in God. But that's not true. See, this inference from because we can't see a reason, and God surely he'd have to have a reason for not intervening, we can't see it, therefore he probably doesn't have a reason, which he'd have to have if he's the kind of God you think, and therefore he's not. But that assumption doesn't seem to be particularly strong 
as various analogies like the chess and the, the Lewis book and so on, even at a human level, seem to, seem to bring out. So, although I think there are various possibilities, plausibilities that we might suggest uh, as God re- God's reasons, I, wouldn't, I would want to be very careful about just simply granting that sort of ground of argumentation, as it were, to the opposition and saying, okay, I'll play on your field now. I think I want to point out to them your field's a bit constricted here. Um, you mentioned earlier about, not touching on theodicy, but mm. you quoted that um, argument from, from the existence of free will. Yeah. In a sense, that is theodicy, isn't it? Uh, you can certainly use that as theodicy, yes. I, I think it particularly becomes defence when he says, well, let's just attribute all natural evil to it. It's much more plausible as, as a theodicy when you're talking about human evil, moral evil, than it is when you're talking about all natural evil, certainly. But you can still use it as a defence. You don't have to say, well, I actually do believe in a free will. Maybe you're arguing with someone who says, well, I, d- I don't believe that there is free will. But they don't have to think that free will is actual. All they have to, all you have to believe is that free will is possible. And if it's possible, then that argument proves that there's no logical contradiction. Because it's not claiming this is how they fit together. It says there's a possible way in which they fit together. But if that's true, they, they can't be logically contradictory statements. Even if the actual reason why they fit together is something else entirely. So you, you don't have to believe that free will is true in order to think that the free will defence works. Um, which is one of the reasons why, even though a lot of atheist philosophers would not believe in free will, they would admit, yeah, that argument works against the logical problem of evil. Because they might say, prepared to say, well, free will's possible, I just don't think it's actual. Yeah. What I tend to find, I, mean, I, I sometimes talk to this with sixth form students, and I think that the, the overwhelming thing that I meet is that people just have this unsort of thought through, intuitive kind of assumption that if they say, well, how come there's all this evil and so on if there's meant to be a God, that asking the question is in, in and of itself completely sufficient and will, will banjax um, the Christian. Um, and it's, it's quite difficult to get students, I'm sure anyone else as well, to sort of sit down and say, OK, well, that's just asking a question, isn't it? You actually need to form this into a proper argument where a conclusion follows from some premises. See if you can do that. <laughs> See if we can construct that. Does, does that argument work? Are all of its premises true? And so on. And um, philosophers are inevitably sort of viewed as being a bit pedantic with people because kind of reality is in that sense pedantic one thing has to connect to another thing and so on Um, but if you can perhaps the easiest way is to kind of throw in some of these analogies um, to to question the assumptions of the objection itself not always have to be suckered into thinking oh I I must come forward with what I think is the explanation you know um, I think we've got explanations that cover quite a lot, but perhaps not not everything. But I don't think we I don't think it's reasonable for us to think 
that we should expect to have an explanation. And that's the amazing thing about the book of Job, that the book of Job is so contemporary to where the, the philosophical discussion about this issue has, has sort of ended up over several hundred years of, of hacking through it. And we've, where's it got to? It's got to the same place as the end of the book of Job. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe there's some providential reason that that book's in there. You know, um, yeah. Sure. I'm not sure if, if this is really kind of your argument, <coughs> the, would you say the fall was a punishment or a consequence? Mm, uh, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> he said, giving himself time to think about it. Um, is the fall a punishment or a consequence? Um, I probably influenced by reading quite a lot of C.S. Lewis and, and generally minded to see what happens because of sin as a consequence rather than a, a, a arbitrary punishment, as it were. I think if, if you think about the sort of other end of the Bible, you think about judgment. I think it's not like. Um, you know, okay, you've parked a car on a double yellow line, so we'll give you a 50 quid fine. You know, we've punished you for breaking the law. Um, but it's an arbitrary punishment. We could have locked you up for a day, or fined you 55 quid or 45 quid, you know. But that there is some punishment for the crime is a good thing, and we just have to pick an arbitrary one, and okay. I think it's much more like C.S. Lewis's imagery of getting drunk, uh, forming your character in your overall life response to God's grace um, you have free will you choose to have a pint fine I choose to have another pint okay, getting a bit gregarious and a bit tipsy, have another pint getting quite tipsy um, if I don't at some stage say oh, oh okay that's my limit, I'm going to stop there I'll just keep going I get to the point where I'm not speaking from personal experience, by the way. Uh, One gets to the point where you're so drunk that you just keep going. And um, what happens to you because you get drunk, the fact that you wake up with a splitting headache and dehydrated, or that you had an accident in the car on the way home because you were drunk, is not a punishment for the, you know, being morally lax about how much you drink, it's a consequence. However, yeah. Adam and Eve got chucked out of the Garden of Eden, and as a result, mm. their disobedience, sin, and death came into the world, and the natural order of creation mm. was corrupted, which is an argument for mm. saying why we have tornadoes, why we have. And attributing it to free will, yeah. yeah. So if you see it as a consequence, Mm. God should not intervene with that. So all you're saying mm. is a punishment that we are all suffering under, but which finishes when we walk into eternal life, when we die. Yeah. The end of which Revelation said that all things will be brought together. Mm. Mm. I think. I think it opens up a whole of theological worms about different interpretations of, of Genesis, particularly the traditions coming from Augustine and uh, St. Irenaeus 
uh, and their uh, two early church fathers with rather different interpretations of Genesis that have had a sort of ripple effect down theological history. Um, but I think even this, this issue of if it's a consequence, then I don't think it necessarily follows that God oughtn't to intervene because, say, and again, it, it very much depends on who are the people involved here. So you have a child and um, they stuff themselves at the party in just the way that you told them not to. You know, don't stuff yourself with cake, you'll be sick. They stuff themselves with cake, they come home, they're sick. Do you, as the parent, intervene to hold their hair back, give them a drink of water, give them, you know, set them down to bed? Um, or do you say, oh, well, that's the consequence of your actions, so I shouldn't intervene to mitigate them? Um, yeah. Well, sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. And maybe sometimes you should and sometimes you shouldn't because it's good that they learn a lesson. And <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, he said the consequence of sin is death. Mm. And that's very clearly stated in the Bible. So go against God, death. And that was stated before they disobeyed God, that they would die of faith mm. and they did it. So that was the consequence. But the arbitrary punishment mm. was the curses, surely. You can certainly take it that way. You can see it as a combination of these different factors. Yeah. God being God, you wouldn't have thought they're arbitrary. I think they're actually redemptive mm. punishments. God limits man's capabilities. He limits his opportunities. Mm. To humble him, I guess. Yeah. There's certainly an element of that in the story of the, the Tower of Babel, for example, isn't there? Yeah. Um, a, a, a sort of punishment that has a redemptive yeah. purpose. Um yeah. As I struggle in my work every day, it makes me think, what's the meaning of all this? Yeah. It makes me search for God. Yes. Which is there, again, I mean, an example of struggling with suffering at a certain level. I don't know what the job is, but it is, you know, that can be suffering. But when you then take on board sort of New Testament eternal perspectives of doing a work unto Christ and the way in which all good things are brought into the new heavens and the new earth, the way in which Paul talks about the believer's judgment, that although we'll all be saved, it might be as someone escaping from the fire with nothing, or if we've built with, what does it say, silver and gold and precious gems, things that, that are lasting and won't be burnt away by refiner's fire, those are sort of carried with us into the glory of heaven, uh, as it were, so that what we do now day by day does make a difference to the way heaven is um, we're collaborating with God in creating the way heaven is here and now not just waiting for a sort of divine deus ex machina to come in and save everything um, yeah hmm. I, don't, I don't really understand this thing about Objective values, the existence of God and the Bible. Okay, we will, we will look into a whole argument about this after the break time. Yes, that's our next issue. So that's a very good uh, last question to raise. So we should have break time and then um, uh, get back to another argument.